0: In the name of Overhead Athletics Podcast, where we cover rehabilitation, biomechanics, human movement, and optimizing human performance. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm your host, Max Wardell. Today, I have a special guest, Rob Gray, from the Perception and Action Podcast in Arizona State University. Rob is an author. He is a professor. He is really an innovator in the field of motor learning and ecological dynamics we're going to get into that today welcome to the podcast
1: thank you very much max my pleasure to be here
0: this was this was a good one to set up and and get into because and i've been thinking about this for a little while if i took your podcast the materials that you've put out add a couple books to that including some of franz bosch's books my estimation, you have the equivalent of probably a master's degree uh, if you go through all of that material <laughs> on motor learning and ecological dynamics. So thank you for putting that out. But I want to dig into some wormholes and uh, dig into some specifics here today.
1: For sure. That sounds great.
0: So talk, so talk to me a little bit just about... What what is ecological dynamics and how does that compare to an information processing approach? Because a lot of times the coaches out there um, or even the rehabilitation professionals get kind of into one lane of thinking or they're taught a certain way in school. And that's not necessarily how the body actually works. And whether they know it or not, they're kind of put themselves into probably an information processing theory because that's the one that's kind of the foremost or the eminent one in university, uh, especially in exercise science programs and sport performance programs and those sorts of things.
1: Yeah, that, that's a great point, Max. I think it's true, and I think it's so dominant in just all over how we think about learning. I think we've kind of lost with well, the motivation and understanding of our underlying theory sometimes. Yeah. So the ecological dynamics. So the traditional information processing idea is that we start to control our actions. We need to take information from the environment and process it in some way, add things to it, um, make predictions, bring in, you know, kind of guess what what might happen versus uh ecological dynamics really starts with the idea of direct perception the idea that if you look for it there's information out there in the environment that will you can tell you what you need to know to perform any action just by linking your movement to it and that's a kind of a term we use perception action coupling so it it kind of gives you a very different view of what it means to be skillful right the, the traditional view and in information processing view is we learn the one correct technique for throwing or something like that. And we get better by repeating it over and over and over. So we develop this kind of program in our head, that like software in our head, that we can pull out when we want to execute that movement. Whereas ecological dynamics more is more about connecting with your environment, learning to pick up information from your environment and link it to some aspect of your movement you can adjust. And the central idea that to be skillful involves being variable. Right, you don't do the same movement every time. You you need to adjust and adapt. So it's more about being adaptable to in the environment.
0: Yeah. So when I even when I went through a PT school and we had clinical neuroscience, um, which was essentially a class where you 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 really went into depth into all of the different reflexes, and then there was half of the class that was allocated to some of the motor learning principles and science. And the interesting thing was. It was, it was supposed to be an overview of all of the different theories of motor learning, and then practical applications, or, or basically trying to, trying to show everybody, hey, here's what these things, here's what these things are, and then here's here's how um, how one may may use some of the concepts or, or um, use the theory to influence movement. And what what was interesting was. It was all through an information processing lens. So when you got to the the ecological theory, you ended up with basically this explanation. Well, this theory is all about the environment, and we know that's not true. (laughs) So, (laughs) so, you you know, I, I felt we were done a disservice. And then, you know, at that at that time, I had already been listening to some of your podcasts and and those sorts of things. And Um, around that time was when I started reading some of Franz Bosch's work as well. Um, and what was pretty astounding to me is what I was already doing with my baseball players had quite a bit, even though I didn't have necessary, necessarily all of the, um, knowledge associated with, um, what ecological dynamics really was. I was using a lot of, um, I guess, those concepts in, in my practice, right? So, you know, utilizing a constraints-led uh, approach and, and utilizing these other other techniques with without the kind of fundamental understanding of what ecological dynamics really was. Um, and so we, we get into this, this point where people, including myself, have kind of moved through the system, if you will, and... Have been trained in t- into believing that this is this is how these things work, and then you're thrown something's thrown at you that that totally flips everything upside down, um, and it's tough to it's tough to deal with as a you know as a professional or as a student or, or whatever it may be.
1: Yeah, no, no, some good points there, Max. I think, yeah, as I said before, I think we kind of lost. It's so ingrained in us that it, it that there there's another alternative is kind of not really considered sometimes, or it's just one quick thing at the end of a long discussion. Yeah, and I I have the same experience in working with a lot of coaches, and uh, same as you, Max. The that the ecological dynamics is just putting a theoretical framework on what a lot of coaches or good coaches are already doing, right? They've discovered through their own experimentation, their own trying different things, these ideas. You know, one of the fundamental ones, the one Franz Bosch always, you know, emphasizes the self-organization idea, the idea that you can't impose on an athlete how to move, (laughs) right? Tell them you need to do this with your elbow. Like Franz says, the body doesn't care what the coach has to say. Right. So using constraints to encourage self organization, doing things like that. I think a lot of coaches have been doing that for a long time. And this I think just is kind of putting a framework and some of the terminology, which I really believe is beneficial because I think it helps you extend it. Even if you're already doing it, understanding why it works exactly and how all the pieces fit together, I think is really useful.
0: And and everybody would act like maybe this is um a brand new approach or um, a brand new theory um, because the way that we've been coaching people and probably Western coaching as well as you know what you'd see in Soviet Union, old stuff from the Soviet Union, is based on the information processing theory. But then if you look at where a lot of the best soccer players in the world come from, where a lot of the best baseball players in the world come from, and then also look at what a lot of the athletes in – United States, in Canada, in Europe, have been doing is they there's some um, play that's unorganized. There there's implicit learning that's occurring because they're practicing with their buddies as they grow up and they're playing around. And I, I think one of the best best examples of that is I'm a big wrestling guy, so if you watch wrestling, like some of the best wrestlers in the world historically, even from these. That grew up in these institutions where drilling is a big thing. Because in wrestling, it's like take them down. They're you know they're going to be your dummy. You you use this exact technique and you do it 25-50 times in a row. But then you see those same guys. They're before practice, after practice, they're rolling around. Uh, they're experimenting. You know they're going fifty percent. One guy's going sixty percent. One guy's going thirty. Letting the guy do it, but he's still giving them some resistance. And they're kind of going through some strange positions. And you've seen. An evolution in that sport, and that now there's so many different techniques that guys are utilizing as well, and they're more successful. A lot of them than what was ever used in kind of the robotic uh, forms of wrestling in the past.
1: Yeah, for sure. I think you know we could, you could. There's lots of definite examples of of great athletes where you dig in. You know, we kind of have this. Superficial thing where we, you know, that great athletes are because they practice more. Like they do a million repetitions. Like Michael Jordan was great because he did did a million jump shots, the same one over and over. He stayed in the gym after. And I think the view is starting to change when you dig deeper. Now you're seeing like people like Stephen Curry, right? Is he adds a million sources of variability in his practice? Right? He's doing different a lot of different things to kind of shake things up and trying different things instead of focusing on repeating the one technique. So, yeah, I think I think you do when you kind of look at the history. Um, you see there's more to the story than the, the strict drilling and repetition in a lot of great athletes. I think a lot of great athletes i work with are definitely not afraid to experiment and try things. And, and so, yeah, I, I think that's definitely true.
0: How do we access um, – how do we access like probably the people that are like myself or, or even a lot of the coaches out there who – have kind of grown up and and been trained into this one model of thinking whether that's by their coaches whether that's by what they learned um, in university or in a book and now they're at a point where they want to become more effective in their implementation because we're probably I mean and you could speak more on this than I could but like a lot of the people who are the researchers and the prof- professors who are entrenched in the information processing theory, they're not going to really budge too much. Maybe some of them will, but, you know, I'm thinking of more the the people who are on the ground level that are working with athletes. Um, and, I, and that's really why I wanted to have you on the podcast, because you can articulate this so much better than I can, um, because, you know, we still see so much of that especially in my sport of baseball is where I notice the most of it.
1: Yeah, no, I think uh, it's a great point, Max. And I think, you know, it's fair, definitely a fair one. You can't expect people to completely abandon <laughs> everything they've been doing and, and not want to keep some of the old things. And, you know, I, the I kind of, there's a bunch of a set of things I kind of recommend. Like if you're in, these, interested in these ideas and you want to change is the first one is being purposeful <laughs> in your practice. Like, a lot of what I do as a consultant is just ask why. Why are you doing that drill? What about that athlete's performance in the last game or competition? Is this meant to address? Is he, are you just doing it because you always do that drill? Or we I did that one. Like, let's think about that more. Um, making practice more game-like, right? Um, if how, can we turn this into a game, right? Can we take you know the example I always like is soccer dribbling around cones. Let's play tag instead. <laughs> like, you can, you can, I, I say with, especially if you're coaching kids, you can tell when you got this right. You'll hear the difference. <laughs> You'll go from the silence of people standing in line running technical drills to kids yelling and screaming. And then the biggest one, you know, baseball that I've kind of worked, I work in baseball as well and the, the adding variability to practice. You know, the old hitting off the pitching coach that's throwing the same speed or a batting machine that's throwing the same speed. Let's change things up a little bit. Um, There's so many benefits to adding variability. It allows you to be adaptable, and, you know, I think that's the easiest win that a lot of coaches can do. Um, So think about being adaptable, not being perfect in practice, I think is a way to think about it.
0: And basically what we're saying here is – don't just practice one thing and just practice one thing over and, over and over and over and over and over and over and over again. Add some other elements into it. Like I listened to one of your, um, I listened to one of your podcasts where you did talk about Steph Curry and he was basically running sprints to fatigue, then shooting, which is going to allow him to be more adaptable to his environment when he gets into that game and he's fatigued. But we have so many ways in which we can start to do that and you're still practicing your technique. And I think that's what a lot of the coaches have to understand is like, you're still practicing your technique, but you're, you're doing so under varying conditions and circumstances, which is what you're going to encounter when you get into the, into the game.
1: Yeah. And and that's kind of the message. It's a very t- different message kind of tough for <laughs> people to accept, but I is that like technique is, 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 Linked to the environment, like it's functional. Like we have this very old view of skill. Like for example, the idea you need to be able to swing before you can hit in baseball. I need to put a ball on the tee and teach you the the fundamentals of the movement of swinging before you can go and hit a ball. The the alternate ecological dynamics we really don't like believe in this idea of the fundamentals, like that you have to decompose and break a thing apart, then put it back in. Because the thing is all about right. You can't hit a ball without being able to pick up the information about the ball flight, and how you swing depends on how you pick up information. Those are linked together. So that's a kind of a fundamental change that the the, the technique, the actual basic movement pattern of coordination, will emerge. The word we use is emerge in the actual context of the game. It doesn't need to be pulled apart and taught first before you can put it in the game. Um, or, you know, that's, you know, the, that kind of idea is kind of, we're moving away from definitely.
0: Yeah. Because you eliminate a lot of the sensory input, you eliminate a lot of the contextual factors that are going to actually, that are going to actually dictate in a lot of ways how you move.
1: Yeah. Yeah. and, And like, it's simple. And the other thing we do in those decomposed technical drills is we take away all the decision making from the athlete, like you do a hitting drill where you have to swing every time. Whereas being a skillful hitter is about deciding when to swing <laughs> and when not to, right? In almost every sport, we lament that we don't have better, more creativity, more better decision-making, yet we don't hardly have any of that in practice. <laughs> and we're surprised that it's not there when we get to the game. So, yeah, I, I think that's a great point.
0: So this is something that, you know, I struggle with all the time. If you – if you've grown up or, or you have expected a certain thing, when I go to practice, my, my job is when I go to practice, I want to leave practice and my skill is visibly better than when I arrived at practice. And a lot of times that's, that's not to, to our benefit. So I get this all the time because I get people coming in they want to improve their throwing technique they come in their throw looks a certain way they want to leave and they want it to look better right away when they leave which doesn't always necessarily mean that their throw is going to actually be better just because it changed for that period of time so you get you get that aspect of it where i need these changes and i need these alterations in how I move or, or how it looks that I move, the this aesthetic component, and I need that now. I think you get that a lot with hitting instruction. But then you also get the, the effect of if I'm throwing at a, a full distance or if I'm throwing to a target and we're changing things or we're, we're utilizing different constraints and that individual is not accurate, all of a sudden that's perceived as This isn't working. He can't throw a strike doing this. When in fact, whoa, 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 there's a lot more going on here.
1: Yeah, there's there's a lot of good points there, Max. Definitely the, in motor learning, we kind of separate, make this dichotomy between performance and learning, (laughs) right? Performing is looking good in practice, right? And, um, you know, if I gave you throwing to a catcher that had a mitt twice as big, (laughs) right? You would feel really good. I'm hitting my target in in practice. I'm looking really good or everything was really predictable for a hitter. You know, I'm not varying the speed much. I'm not varying the pitch type much. I look really good. I feel like I'm doing well in practice, but that's performing. Learning, right? Learning, we need to do a couple things. We need to challenge you. And learning, we learn from mistakes, right? We need to fail to learn. So you're right, uh, some things that make us struggle and you know not do well in an individual practice session are the best things for getting better in the future, which is what we're trying to do. So, yeah, I think you know, coaches have to set the kind of expectation of we move away from... We do, you know, in a lot of team sports, we have this idea that everything should look perfect and organized and things. You know, I go through even major league camps, I see some fielding drills where they're, you know, they're teaching... A catcher had a field bunts, and every single time they know, before the play starts, they know where the bunts going to go and what base to throw to. Right? That's not how baseball works. That makes it look really good in practice, like they're really accomplished. But w- what we're moving to is actually looking bad and challenging is going to make you better in the game later on when you get a bunt that spins out of control. There's two men on base, right? You have to adapt. So, yeah, I think we really need to change. The coach needs to set the expectation that, you know, it doesn't have to be the way this way for every activity, but this activity is really going to challenge you. You're going to fail some of the time. That's exactly what I expect. (laughs) I'm not expecting you to be perfect every time, and, and the players kind of have to embrace that.
0: Yeah, and I'll go as far as to say, and I don't know what your thoughts are on this, Rob, but I'll go as far as to say that just because you're doing some of those drills where the catcher knows exactly where it's going doesn't mean that's that's a bad thing or doesn't mean that you can't do it. It just means that maybe that's not the most optimal thing um, to train the catcher to get better at fielding and throwing um, fielding the bunt and throwing it down to the base. Maybe I have to... I can still continue to use some of that, but I have to start to add some stuff that is variable in nature or, hey, it's unpredictable. He doesn't know where this bunt's going to go or it's an actual bunt, and then he's got to field it while there's a hitter in the box or or whatever it may be. Um, Because, you know, I'm not ready to completely throw a lot of that stuff out, and I know coaches are neither, and I don't believe that's what you're saying.
1: No, no, definitely. I think, uh, you know, a really important idea is kind of periodizing skill training like we do – uh, physical training, you know, the idea that there's times where we really want to push you and challenge you and get you to learn something different and be adaptable. Then there's other times, maybe closer to the game, we just want to get make you feel confident and, and you know, so maybe le- less variability, more predictability um, is. We're not really our goal. That's kind of going back to that uh, point I made about being purposeful. What is the goal of this drill? Is it to get the catcher to be learn to feel bunts from all different angles and be really adaptable? Or is it just to make them feel confident about the next game, right? So having a goal of the particular session? So yeah, I think so. Um, I, I think there's definitely room for all those kind of things.
0: Absolutely. And then where do we make room for direct instruction in an ecological theory? Because that's really the, that's really the foremost thing or the, the number one tool in the toolbox of the information processing. Um, theory is, hey, we got to tell them what they need to do and how to do it so that they can do it properly. But we're not abandoning that if we start to work. Um, we start to work in a way that's more contextual to the environment and to the task and the individual. We're just saying, hey, we have to alter the reason behind why we do it and then how we do it a little bit.
1: Yeah, exactly. Nail right on the nail, the right on the head there, Max. Yeah, this is a common misconception of the this approach that. I'm just designing practice. Then I stand back and don't get you know don't do anything. Absolutely, as a coach, if you see something, you know the athlete doing something that might lead to injury, or you something you know, you still have to use your expertise as a coach. You know that's not going to work, right? So you can step in with some instruction. You're um, you want to do it a lot less, right? And you want to have it a good reason. You don't want to step in because that's not the typical way people hit swing maybe it works for that person um, and you also want to try to avoid you know you know try to use you know one of the things you know in terms of cues focus on more external don't try to focus too much on the body you know try driving the ball the other way or adding a constraint another constraint right if the person's pulling off the ball you can put something on the ground that they, they tell them not to step over it, right? So there's different ways. You still wanna kind of step in and guide. So the way I like to think of it is a guide, not an instructor, right? So I'm not gonna tell you the answer, but I am gonna step in and kind of push you and lead you, try that path, you know, is the way that I like to think about it.
0: How did you, how did you kind of start to migrate into this approach um, because I know that you've done a lot of work in the past, and if you went back and probably listened to some of your initial stuff that you put online, you, you have a different, um, a very different perspective um, on things than probably when you first started your podcast or those those sorts of things.
1: Yeah, for sure. There's a couple. One, I do try to cover the other. Uh, you know, the, the information processing approach, even though it's kind of not my my thing, but I definitely have changed over the. What really happened? So I I researched a lot of information processing ideas, ideas of automaticity, uh, you know, repetition. And then when I really went to try to apply it, I started working with major league teams and other sports as well. Um, I really found I couldn't. I didn't know what to do. Like um, the kind of direct explicit instruction wasn't working. I didn't really have a good understanding of um, how, you know, the actual act of hitting and swinging a bat was coming about. And so I really, once I kind of wanted to apply it more directly and help help hitters, I found that the ecological approach, which, where we actually go, go about explaining how the movement is achieved, right, um, it was was much more valuable to me. Um, so, and I, and then I just, you know, the ideas of self-organization and things, once you kind of get into things, just made a lot more sense to me when I was trying to do it, um, go to look at the whole picture.
0: Yeah, and this isn't... When we talk about self-organization, I mean, we're not just talking about random self-organization. We're talking about as the the coach, in a way, sitting up here as the master puppeteer in in sort of a way and and putting obstacles or or putting different things into the environment or into the task to to try to direct that self-organization in a certain direction.
1: Yeah, for sure. The kind of the phrase we should always use when we talk about self organization is self organization with respect to constraints, right? So we, we organize our behavior relative to the constraints imposed on us, right? Are my own constraints, my height, my flexibility, the environment, whether it's windy, you know what the task is, and you're perfectly right. The way the coach can step in is adding constraints, changing them to kind of push you and 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 change the way you're self organizing, right? Because um, they're right, you know that another common thing I hear is, well, won't people Self organize into bad movement solutions, yes, for sure. <laughs> and but uh, that's why, as a coach, you have to change the constraints and, and move them away from those or, or kind of manip- uh, help to guide them to a better solution.
0: Yeah, I like that. And it's like, uh, when can they self organize into a bad solution or um, a less optimal solution? Maybe, maybe due to constraints. And I always look at like physical constraints. First, as a physical therapist, I'm looking at, okay, do they have hamstring flexibility? Do they have lat flexibility? What's their hip internal rotation? And so maybe based on those constraints, that's going to lead them to pathway least resistance into a less efficient, a less efficient movement. But we also have to consider, you know, the big one that, um, and I like this terminology is looking for energy in the wrong place. Um, Mm -hmm. Just you have, yeah, you have a finite number of solutions out there. It seems infinite's a lot of solutions, and I'm gonna choose one of them that doesn't mean I chose the best the best
1: option for sure for sure and uh, you were you know as human beings, we're brutally efficient learners right We'll latch on to whatever works given the situation you put me in um we, often with not you know we don't have an eye towards being in you know another set of conditions or more demanding conditions just. What can what works now, and very, we're also very not particularly good at taking into account long term injury possibilities and stuff. Where we're just you know we'll latch on to, you know. So for sure, I think, um, and I think that's an important point you raise about. I, I I I like to think about kind of the relate link between strength and conditioning, physical therapy, and skill training. Um, that we need a better link between them, right? When you you increase my flexibility or my ability to rotate, you suddenly have just given me more possible solutions. doesn't mean I'm going to take them, but if we link those together, instead of trying to instruct you into a solution with traditional instructions that I can't do, (laughs) work on the actual giving me more capacity um, in my body. So, yeah, I think that's a really important point.
0: Yeah, and I I like what you brought up there, which was just because you've chosen a a pattern that's, Stable or allows you to um, be somewhat successful where you're at doesn't mean that strategy is always going to work. So you could throw a certain way, and hey, I'm not having any elbow pain, but that doesn't mean I'm always going to not have elbow pain just because I didn't right now. Long term, that strategy may lead to wear and tear and strain on my ulnar collateral ligament based on the way in which I moved, and that's just the solution that I chose.
1: Yeah, for sure. The, the example I sometimes like to give is, you know. Early separation in, th- in pitcher, you know, when you, you separate your body from your, your arm from your body really early. You're, uh, you, I think you're, your phrasing is exactly right. You know, people are getting, trying to generate energy from the whip in their arm instead of letting the kinetic chain stay together. And that, when you're young and healthy and you don't have many throw pitches on your odometer, right, that, that can work really well. But you probably in the long term, that's probably not going to be the best solution, you know, and there's lots of examples like that. You're right. We, we kind of we're very efficient at getting something that works for the constraints imposed upon us. And um, that's why, you know, hitting off the same setting on a pitching machine, you'll you'll develop a skill that works for that. <laughs> then you get to a pitcher that's varying speeds and locations. And what do you do? Right. You have to learn a new one. Um, so, yeah, that's a really important point.
0: What are, what are your thoughts on kind of the idea of the universal attractors? Because you're trying to build stability in the movement where my movement is resilient to various environmental factors or uncontrollables. Um, like I like to talk to my athletes, it's, it's there's uncontrollables out there, and the better that you are at this skill, or the, the more stable you are, the better you're going to be able to tolerate those and adapt when you get um, into the competition or into the game, um, kind of how do you how do you make sense of that?
1: Yeah, I definitely. I think you know could talk about it in terms of attractors. I like to talk about I think all skillful movements have both invariant properties that have to be there. Um, from all for all executions and all movement and variant properties, things that can change from execution and, and right if we didn't have invariant things, then you wouldn't be able to classify things as throwing, hitting, right. So I think yeah, there's some key things that you need to stabilize. Um, you know, I think when the one I just kind of talked about transfer of force, you know, in a kinetic chain, uh, if you want maximal performance, you have to have that, right I think. Um, And I think there's a few other key attractors. You stabilize around those, make sure they're there, you know, use constraints to get those as a coach and then, but then let everything else vary, right? Because you don't have to have the exact same stride length or the, so it seems like there's these attractors, but there's the, the, some of the kinematics around those you can let vary.
0: Yeah. So basically what you're saying is, and correct me if I'm wrong. You can throw a lot of different – like if you throw slow, if you throw 40 miles an hour, just you can do basically any combination of things, and the ball can come out 40 miles an hour because it's not difficult to throw 40 miles an hour. But when you throw fast, certain things are going to have to happen that are the same, not just for me, but across some individuals as well. And then there's certain things that are going to vary, so you're not creating the same throw, but you have to create – there has to be some similarities between – This guy who throws ninety five, this guy who throws ninety five, and you—if you want to throw ninety five—would would you say that's correct?
1: For sure, yeah. I think this a, a point Franz Bosch makes really well, you know. As we push the constraints up and up, <laughs> um, the amount of solutions you have available goes down and down, right? You, there, there's only so many ways you can make a baseball go 100 miles an hour, <laughs> right? Um, you can't throw underhand. You can't, th- you know, side arms probably not, you know. So it's narrowing the solution. So, yes, there's certain things that that definitely have to be there. Um, the, um, you know, the kind of the attractors Franz talks about, I think, are, are, are a good way to think about that.
0: Yeah, so the attractors that he talks about now—would you say that's the same as or synonymous with uh, variance and then invariance for like uh, fluctuators versus attractors? Would you say that's the same, or or how would you define those things?
1: Yeah, so I think there's kind of some fundamental, you know, principles about like co-contraction. You know, those are kind of the kind of the the things that are attractors. But then we look at pitching research, like. Your exact amount of the, the the idea we want to move away from is that you have to have a perfectly repeatable delivery, like everything about your your the amount of rotation, the, the maximum elbow flexion, the wrist angle. Those the idea the traditional idea is those should be all the same or as much as possible from throw to throw. If we look closer, we actually we see those things need to vary, right, to be able to adjust for like fatigue. We we're talking about basketball. Um, You you let those things work together and vary from execution to execution. That's actually a large part of being skillful. So we need these fundamental things, these attractors. But around that, how we achieve that, the actual kinematics, what our knee flexion is and all those things need to vary. That's kind of the way I think of it.
0: So it doesn't mean being inconsistent. It basically means I'm controlling consistent outcomes. So I'm still hitting the same... You know, and you need some things to be consistent. Like my release point. If I'm going to throw it to that same spot, I want my release point to be consistent. But how I get to that release point can, can in fact, vary and probably should vary um, if I'm going to avoid, quote unquote, overuse injuries or or those sorts of things. And it has to. It really has to because the ground changes. I push off the mound, and now there's a little bit more of a hole here, or a divot here.
1: Exactly. Yeah. They, yeah. That that's kind of one of the 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 kind of The idea not only is repetition not the way to being skillful, it's actually impossible, right? If I apply the exact same forces in my body, it's not going to lead to the same outcome. Because as you said, there's little changes going on both inside internally from fatigue and muscle injury and other things and the environment as well as changing around me. So I need to be able to adapt. You know, The phrase that we like to use in ecological dynamics comes from a Russian uh, Nikolai Bernstein repetition without repetition i repeat hitting my target as as a pitcher but not by repeating the movement the same way every time i need to vary the movement slightly differently every time to achieve the same goal of hitting my target
0: so with with this in mind like do you think there's times that are the way in which we operate has to be based on an information processing um um, approach or I don't even know how i would articulate that but you know I'm thinking of high intensity skills versus low intensity skills or, or even um, you know any at, at a low intensity anything that requires a lot more thought and that's not to that's not to straw man and say um, that thinking and decision making isn't a part of the ecological approach but in my mind, I'm thinking about slow movements that are, that are well planned out. I'm going to do this. And I, and I know it's not strictly an information processing theory, but there's something else going on as opposed to what happens at a, at a higher intensity or, or in these kind of reactive um, type of uh, skills.
1: Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. I, I think, now, I would say I don't believe that there's any need for the information processing view. The kind of the fundamental idea of direct perception is there's always information from the environment that can guide your movements, whether it's visual information, proprioceptive. And I don't think that changes um, when you slow down a movement. Probably what changes is you have more time to kind of um, process the feedback and attend to the movement, so you kind of have more awareness of what's going on. Um, but I don't believe that's any differently of how you're, what you're actually controlling the movement itself from, from, I still think you can explain it the same way.
0: How do you, how do you kind of move over into like the cognitive, uh, cognitive domain? Because like, we're talking about movement skills. Um, but just in my mind, I'm also thinking about like mathematics or something like, The way we like, and I don't know if this is even true, but the way I've thought about it is like the way I, the way I operate in, in movement from, um, a neurological standpoint can't be drastically different than the way I would operate in thinking or, or solving a mathematics problem or can it?
1: Um, yeah, that's a good, I think there's a couple of things I think, um, the idea of you know math doing a math problem, you have you uh, know you're not really temporally constrained. You're not actually controlling the movements of your limbs. You're just coming up with a uh, you're using abstract symbols, math equations to solve an abstract problem. So I think it's it's fundamentally different than actually moving your body in a in a skillful manner. But I, I, at the same time, I think I think we all recognize you know as a teacher, I recognize that. We don't. The way that we teach is very much an information processing view. Here, I'm going to tell you all the stuff about math. You regurgitate it to me on a t- test. Done. Grade. Where you know, I don't. I think most of us in education realize that's an efficient way to learn, and that's the way we we uh, to teach, and that's a way that we've always done it. But I don't think we. I think most of us would agree it's not the best way to. If we actually wanted you to learn something we, about math, we get you to apply it, <laughs> yeah, right? Absolutely. Try doing building something, build build something that flies. Learn about dynamics, right? Um, I think, but that takes more time. It's more. That's that's another problem with this challenge with the ecological approach. It takes more time, right? It takes more. You have to let people find their way and figure things out. It's much easier just to tell someone that shows up the first day, here's how you swing. Mm-hmm. It looks like they got some proficiency, you done your job, check, leave. Um, but we're kind of playing more of the long game. So, yeah, so I think there's, you know, I don't, there, there are people that do like ecological approach to higher level functions like math and processing, but um, which probably <laughs> I don't think too much about to be honest, but there are people that conceptualize it that way as well.
0: Yeah. I'd have to do some, some more research into that because that is interesting. And like, I could tell you, I mean, I remember one, probably 50th of what I've learned (laughs) regarding math over the years. Um, and that's probably based on the, the approach, uh, in the way in which it was taught, but also, you know, my practical application, like you're saying here. Um, and like, you'll remember things that, that you're practically applying because you, you have to, you, you learn that that's a, that's a skill that you, that you need, but that's, you know, and that's kind of my, my thought is like with human movement at, at a slower intensity, I, I have thought about that as more of something that, you know, it is in my mind, something that may require more of the, um, more actual processing of the environment. And I don't know if I'm looking at that wrong, but I I think once you get into like, I would look at like something like curling, like fundamentally, like fundamentally different than something like throwing a baseball based on just the intensity of the skill. Where do you think I'm like going wrong or what, what, where do you think I'm, I'm off here? Because I'm thinking of the guy sliding the thing really slowly down the, down the line. And, Certainly, he can make online uh, corrections, but you know there there has to be um, there has to be some sort of fundamental difference, and you know that's why I've thought like you know we operate on certain things now, but what about in like fifty years, somebody might come come out with something a little more comprehensive.
1: <laughs> um, for me, you know, I'm I'm stubborn. You know, in the ecological side, where one of the things we do is we be stubborn about it. We're we're always looking to try to explain it from the information in the environment if i appeal to some mo- so I, if i could you could in curling i could say i developed some internal mental model of how the projectile motion of a curling stone right to predict based on the angle to me that doesn't really solve anything it just says i have a thing in my head that helps skill right whereas in the ecological approach, we would say through practice and, and th- learn if a pitcher, you took a baseball pitcher, and they'd learn the dynamics of a curling stone. They'd learn the, the feel, the proprioceptive information. They'd learn picking up information from the ice, the target. So they'd learn by calibrating their, their movement uh, of throwing a stone by linking it to information from the environment. They don't need to develop any complex model of the, the, di- the physics of curling. Um, that that's kind of the information processing approach. Is that there's not enough information in the environment? I need to enhance it, so I need to somehow develop a predictive model of of, of physics of ice and curling stone, and, and it, which seems overly complex um, to me anyway. But but that that's kind of the way I think about it. I think there's always, if you look hard enough, there's always information in the environment that I can pick up that can guide the action without the need for any uh, in additional processing. That's, that's a fundamental Gibson's idea of direct perception that kind of, we stick to doggedly and stubbornly sometimes.
0: So I don't know if the way to test it would be to take those, take those curlers and then let's say, put them on, instead of real ice, we put them on fake ice and then we say, all right, like how long does it take them to adapt to that environment? Because they, if they're if it is like you're saying, and um, you know they should they should be able to adapt. I would say rather quickly. Like, I'm seeing where I, I'm seeing my results, um, and I'm gonna now I'm just gonna change what I'm doing a little bit to alter my results. I'm going you know, online information of how that how what I feel as I'm moving forward before I release the whatever that thing is called. What are your what are your thoughts? Code. How would you how would you like put forward a test? Because like that's probably what we're gonna need, you know, in the future. And you know, I, I'm not too stuck on any of that. I, you know, I guess I'm pretty malleable in that respect. But I, I think a lot of people are stuck on you know one side of. The...
1: <clears throat> yeah it it it's hard for me. You know, it's hard to come up with an experiment like that that contrasts. Um The, in the ecological approach, the way that I think about it is. In, if I can find an information source source that it can explain what you're doing like a good example is catching a fly ball in baseball right there's been a lot of work showing people the way people actually catch a fly ball is they couple their running to the information from the ball the excel the rate which is accelerating across your eye right? right and there's lots of evidence showing that's what they do that's why fielders don't just run to a location stand there and wait for the ball to be there. That's why uh, center fielders have tr- most trouble with balls hit directly at them, the information. So if I can sh- find an information source and shows it, explains the, the the behavior, then the ecological approach is one, right? Because then I don't need to try to say they have a model of the projectile motion physics in their head, right? Because I've explained the whole thing by information which I have ex- access to, Um when I anytime I refer to an internal model or processing, I can't see that it's a black box in your head, right? So if I if I can explain it from the environment to me, I, I don't I can stop there because <laughs> I don't need to try to contrast and show the two are different because I've explained it in a visible, sim- simplified <laughs> simpler way. um So for me, it's it's more about. Instead of designing experiments that compare and contrast <laughs> indirect and direct, it's about doing more experiments that try to figure out what information people are using. Yeah, that, that's, that's what I do. That, that's
0: fair enough. I mean, you can tell yeah. I have a little bit of cognitive dissonance here. Uh, oh no, it, it's
1: very yeah. common. <laughs> this, you know, it's it's very. I get a lot of the similar comments. So yes, for sure, it, it, it makes total sense.
0: Yeah. So, if we were to kind of branch this into um, a little bit. I guess a slightly different domain, which is top-down versus bottom-up um, processing or controls of movement, if you will. Um, you know, how do we make sense of that in terms of like high-intensity movement, just from a, from a general perspective? And, and I guess for the listeners, um, like, what are we talking about when we talk about like top-down versus bottom-up controls of movement? Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, so the top-down idea is, you know, the basic idea that we control, it's all about our brain, right, skills all in our brain. I have a motor program, this kind of software in my brain for how to pitch, right? So my brain, I have a thing that's going to, when I say I want to pitch now, it's going to say, okay, elbow, do this, wrist, do that, shoulder, do that. So it's specifying all the parameters of my body in the movement. The brain is specifying this. Um, that's top down. Top means brain to body, right? So your body is just kind of this unintelligent, subservient <laughs> of your brain, right? Versus bottom up is where the argument that control actually lies within the body itself. Uh, the brain's kind of specifying intentions, picking up the information, coupling to the information, but how the actual movement is is actually done is sorted out at the lower levels, at the bottom. You know, um, the example we always give in in ecological dynamics is a flock of birds, right? A flock of birds organizes and flies and goes all over without hitting each other. There's no boss bird in a flock of birds, right? There's no one telling each bird what to do. All they're doing is, okay, my neighbor's coming at me, I'll move away. And when they all do that and work together, it gets this overall pattern of organization. And that's kind of what people think, um it's happening in the body right you were getting at the lower levels it's kind of hard i know this is kind of hard to to conceptualize but the the organization is happening at the lower levels as well it's not all about information stored in your brain
0: yeah i like to think of it like uh you have your like headquarters like your military headquarters but then you have all these command outposts and the command outposts cannot always have to call Mm -hmm. the the headquarters before they respond because they don't always have time. And that's how I've conceptualized it um, or analogized it to to people. But um, and I don't know if that's a perfect uh, perfect uh, uh, representation, but it kind of works in a way. It's like you have your big your big headquarters here, um, which is going to give us the the general like idea of, hey, here's what needs to happen and then you've got these command outposts that are really going to figure out how to make it happen.
1: Yeah, that that's, you know, that's I think that's a great analogy. In, the, in my book I use a business which very similar. Yep. Yep. Like the traditional view, you know, you a good CEO delegates and lets people do their own thing. <laughs> but, right, it doesn't tell, they don't tell everyone in the mailroom you need to do this and that and that next, right? They let people organize themselves a little bit. So yeah, I think that's a good analogy. Yeah,
0: leadership happens at the top. Practical application happens throughout. Something, something to that effect. Um, mm-hmm. You know, so with with that in mind, um, you know, we still see a lot of like I I still see a lot of tweets and things like that, like uh, the CNS is king, or it's all about the the central nervous system. It's like okay, um, but there's there's a lot there's a lot more to it, especially when it comes to you know if you're talking about precision in throwing or accuracy in throwing, you know, as, as one example, there, there's many other, uh, factors.
1: Yeah. I think, I think in general, we kind of don't give our body enough credit. (laughs) Like we, we, we're so kind of almost fetishized with the brain that that's where all the intelligence is. And I think our body is just an incredible machine that, you know, has a, so much intelligence of its own to be able to flexibly, you know, adapt and adjust and be variable. I think we, we just don't take that for, we take that for granted, I think, um, in, in the way we think about things. I think, you know, we think about everything has to be top down from our brain when, when there's so much else going on for sure.
0: Yeah. I like that. I mean, if I was gonna, if I was gonna say, Hey, where I need to start, where I need to start learning about this. Cause you have a lot of materials out there. Um, and like you're going into depth a lot of times way, way beyond what we've even talked about here. Where where should these where should people start? I mean, you have a, <laughs> you have a great book uh, that's out, too. So you definitely want to plug that. But, um, you know, where should people start learning about it if they're basically where I was, you know, a few years back where it was like a new a new thing for me?
1: Yeah, I know. Good question, Max. And this, you know, not sounding like a plug, but the, the exact reason I wrote the book, uh, which is called How We Learn to Move on Amazon, there's my plug, <laughs> was that I, wa- I get this question a lot. And I, I had a hard time giving people a good answer. Of There's a lot of great books out there um, and there's some more coming like specific to people's sports. But there, there, there's a lot of terminology in this. You probably, like today, we we hit a lot of them already. And it's fairly high level. So I tried to write the book to be, here's the basic logic of the ecological approach, the idea of variability, repetition without repetition, self-organization, attractors. And I tried to put it all, to link it all together. And that was my goal in writing the book, to give people a starting point. And so far, it's pretty good feedback that, that I achieved that. So that would be my where I would start um, and then go from there. Um, a lot, I, at the end of the book, I, I created these. I called them exploration guides, so where you can go to next and some of my resources and other people's. But, yeah, if you jump into the podcast like at the latest episodes, it's very deep in the weeds, right? Um, you're going to have tr- trouble. Um, so I get that a lot. <laughs> um, so, yeah, that, that's really the book. Is, it was meant to be, for, for me, the, the starting point for people.
0: Okay. Yeah. So the book, start with the book. And I, and like I said, there's a lot of, there's a lot of great stuff. I, I, I truly believe this. I truly believe that if you read your book, if you read both of Franz Bosch's two most recent books, if you listen to all your episodes of the podcast, I mean, I'm hard pressed to say that you don't have as much, you haven't accrued as much knowledge as as equivalent to a (laughs) master's degree in the topic. I, I really, I really do believe that.
1: Um, Yeah, thank thank you. I appreciate it. Yeah, I would write definitely Franz books. There's books, The Dynamics of Skill Acquisition, and the ones by Chris Button and Keith Davids and colleagues are really good as well. So yeah, there's a lot of good resources out there. It's just, you know, kind of be, you know, have have fun with it. And, you know, and and there's some sports specific ones, as I mentioned. So I, I think there's a lot of different ways you can get this information um, there's it's available at the now for sure it 's great to have it getting it from the original sources of the papers the journal articles that can be pretty tough too because yeah, it 's some pretty very high level stuff and when we write journal articles, we really write them for our colleagues, not people outside the area so so yeah there's a but there 's a lot of great resources now for getting into this stuff
0: yeah that's why i like I like your um your materials um Especially because, like, I read a paper yesterday on complexity, uh, complexity theory. Basically, <laughs> it got sent to me via, I just recently started using Google Scholar for alerts on papers. Um, mm-hmm. and it got sent to me because it was about, um, complexity, but it was also about pitching. So, um, and I, and I was like reading it, I'm like a quarter of the way through. Um, and I'm like, I don't even know what's going on here anymore. There's so, (laughs) (laughs) there's so many symbols and it was so complex. I'm like, Holy cow, this is way beyond. I don't even know what I'm going to be able to get out of this thing. Um, yeah, I I have the same team articles or or books like your, like yours. And then your podcast does a great job of, uh, of breaking down a lot of complex things, which will give you the base. If you, if you later, if you take all this information, you could go in and, and start to peruse the literature and gain a lot yeah, th- out of it after going through what you've put out there for free which is why i love it because i love you know i love anything <laughs> where people have access to material
1: yeah thanks you know i appreciate it max yeah i, I try i building i shouldn't point out these are not just my ideas of how to be skillful i'm building off a lot of people's work and just disseminating it and trying to make it more understandable you know get, get, uh, Um, 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 Turvey and Carl Newell and Gibson and Bernstein, they're, they're the ones that have all the big ideas. Um, I just try to make it more digestible for people. So I appreciate that a lot.
0: Yeah. And I just want to thank you once again for coming on the podcast. Um, the name of Rob's podcast is the action perception podcast. Um, he's got a lot of that stuff on YouTube if you're on YouTube, but also all the, uh, podcasting platforms and Rob is fairly active i would say on twitter as well um where where's the best place for people to to reach out to you or send you a question that you may get a chance if possible to answer on your podcast or at some other time so
1: the best single place to go, I have a website, perceptionaction.com, that has all the podcasts, my book, and all my social media. It has some resources too. You know, I talk about the ecological approach to preventing injury and things like that. So I would suggest going there. I, th- I think you can, any, anything you want to do there, um, you can find there.
0: Awesome. Awesome. One last very quick question. Uh, I'm curious. <laughs> Since you started all of this work on the internet and have become much more popular, especially in this niche area, uh, have you noticed that you have a lot more people trying to sign up for your classes
1: <laughs> at ASU? Um, it, it not somewhat, somewhat. Um, I'm kind of hidden away in a weird way in my. I'm a the uh, my program's not really sports. Focused at all? I'm really the only, but I'm, I have been teaching for a long time. I've been teaching a course called Human Factors in Sports, mm-hmm. um, which which is pretty popular. Wanted it because there's not a ton of them, um, but no, not yet, <laughs> really. A lot of. A lot more like t- coaches and teams reaching out to me, but yeah, it has. <laughs> um, I, one day, I, one day, I hope to put uh like a course plan online. Yeah, that'd be awesome. for for people. Um, but but that's on my big to do list of other things. Okay. So, right. um, but but yeah, no, not 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 yet. Good question. Um mm-hmm. <laughs> uh,
0: in the name of Overhead Athletics, I'm Max, and we're signing off.